In her book, Walking in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus, Lois Verberg retells the following story about a famous first century rabbi named Rabbi Akiva. One day as Rabbi Akiva was shepherding his flocks, he noticed a tiny stream that was trickling down a hillside, dripping over the ledge on its way towards the river below. And below was this massive boulder. Now, surprisingly, the rock bore a deep impression. The drip, drip, drip of water over the centuries had hollowed away the stone. Akiva commented by saying this, If mere water can do this to hard rock, how much more can God's word carve away into my heart of flesh? Akiva realized that if water had flowed over the rock all at once, the rock would have been unchanged. But it was the slow but steady impact of each small droplet, year after year, that completely reformed the stone. That's not what I want to hear. You see, I like the big splash. I like the big splash of biblical insight from a conference speaker or a popular book. That is more exciting. But remember, a water rarely changes a rock. A targeted, concentrated, consistent drip hollows away the stone. That drip of daily Bible study, the drip of daily meditating on God's Word, that drip of not understanding a text, but digging and digging, that's what God uses to change hearts. Church, don't treat God's Word as an annoying drip, but a powerful force. Listen to the biblical writer's views of God's Word. Take Peter, for instance. He reminds his Christian readers that they had been born again, catch this, through the living and enduring Word of God, 1 Peter 1.23. James says similar, similarly that by God's own will, he brought us forth by the Word of truth. Therefore, James commands his readers to receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. James 1, 18 and 21. Think of when John speaks of the word that abides in you, 1 John 2, 14, and the truth that sets us free, John 8, 32. And Paul makes the parallel between God's work in creation and new creation. He says this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. In other places, Paul teaches that faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17. Now, all of these statements come from Jesus himself, who said this, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, John 6, 63. You see, God's word transforms. Now, it's this question of transformation that someone is asking in Psalm 119. In fact, they ask the question this way in verse 9. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? Think of the path of purity as a path of honor, as a clear way, clean way of life. And here is the psalmist's advice. Verse 9. By living according to your word. Picture it this way. Picture a wilderness with dangerous cliffs that one could fall off of. 
Uh, Picture a wilderness where there are hungry animals hiding in caves and in bushes, waiting to pounce on the unexpected traveler. In this wilderness, there are many worn paths, but most lead to danger. But there's one, one path, if followed, leads to safety. Well, the psalmist says that that is God's word. The path that leads a traveler safely to their destination. God's word is the safe path. Now that's great advice, but how? How does a person stay on the path of honor based on God's word? Well, the psalmist answers this in verses 10 through 16. The psalmist gives us eight ways a person can guard their way according to God's word. And here they are. By seeking the Lord with all your heart, verse 10. And then also in verse 10, by not wandering from God's commandments. The psalmist then says, by treasuring God's word in one's inmost being, verse 11. Then there's by speaking with one's own mouth all the teachings of God's mouth, verse 13. By delighting in the path that God has called us to walk, verse 14. By fastening one's mind on God's teachings, verse 15. By finding great joy in God's teachings, verse 16. And finally, in verse 16, by remembering God's word. You see, we gain the wisdom of God through the intake of God's word by these various means. Because it's through his word, God protects his people against the forces that would injure, that would distort our well-being. And yet we are forgetful people. We forget or dismiss the wisdom that God gives. In the novel, 100 Years of Solitude by Garcia Marquez, the author describes a fictional village that's suffering from an insomnia plague. As this plague continues, it gradually causes the loss of memory. Well, to try and salvage memory, there's a man named Jose who developed an elaborate plan that involved labeling everything. And here's what the the book says. With an inked brush, he marked everything with its name. Table, chair, clock, door, wall, bed, pan. He went on to the corral and marked the animals and plants. Cow, goat, pig, hen, banana. Well, as the villagers' memories continued to fade, Jose decided that he needed to be even more direct in his explanation. He posted a sign on a cow that read, This is the cow. She must be milked every morning so that she will produce milk, and the milk must be boiled in order to be mixed with coffee to make coffee and milk. Thus, they were living in a reality that was slipping away momentarily captured by words, but which would eventually escape. And when they forgot the values of the written letters, that's when it would be lost. And eventually the village put a placard on the entrance to this town that said this, God exists. As knowledge of the reality of God was also slipping away from their memory. You see, God's people were no different. By the time the prophet Jeremiah is writing, Israel has forgotten the teachings of God. Israel has so broken the old covenant that they received from Moses in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
that God intervenes and God graciously renews the covenant so he can stay in relationship with Israel, even though they have been unresponsive to God. And this is what Jeremiah is talking about in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Here's what it says. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of, the, out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, they abandoned me. You see, Jeremiah says Israel and Judah broke my covenant. This breaking of the covenant, it's, it's more than a mistake. It's more than an occasional sin. It was deeper than that. In fact, Jeremiah describes the sin problem of his people this way. Sin is engraved with an iron tool on the tablets of their hearts. Get the picture? Their hearts are hard as rock. And as a sculptor uses a chisel and hammer to engrave an image on a rock, God's people have engraved their sin on their hearts. Their hearts are no longer sensitive to the leading of God through his teaching. In verse 33, listen to what God does to address this in God's renewed covenant with his people. Here it is. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Hmm. You see, the sin engraved on their hearts, God will replace it by engraving his teachings, his word on their hearts. God's instruction will become central to their lives. It will be the authority by which God's people will want to live. You see, unlike the covenant made with Moses, the renewed covenant will be a keepable promise. Now, don't miss the grace. Don't miss the grace here. You see, Israel is a sinful people, but God is not running away from them. In fact, God is acting to keep his people close to him. Even in the Old Testament, the grace of God moves towards sinners. Well, with God's teachings written on their hearts, it does not mean God's people will live his truth with perfection. But what it does express, it expresses a change in desire. The desire that God's people will now have towards God's teaching. God's people will crave God's word and seek to live it out. This renewed covenant, it's so different from the covenant God made with Israel in Exodus at Mount Sinai. As Israel came out of their slavery in Egypt, God was the God who heard the cries of his people in slavery 
And God was willing to choose this oppressed people and create them to be his people, giving them a mission in the world. But in the renewed covenant, their relationship with God will go even further. You see, in Jeremiah, we see God as merciful merciful and gracious, even to the very people who rejected him. He is a God of second chances, willing to commit himself to his people beyond their sin, beyond their rebellion, beyond their self-centeredness. Through this renewed covenant, God pledges loyalty to Israel, and Israel has a second opportunity to pledge loyalty to God. You see, in the renewed covenant, their loyalty will be measured by their decision to respond to God's teachings. Respond to God's teachings that are now written on their hearts. And look at the change in lifestyle that will occur in God's people. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness. The change God's people will experience is that they will know the Lord. That's a pretty powerful word. It's an amazing picture. This word know, it was often used to describe the deepest of friendships. It was the word that was used to describe the intimacy between a husband and a wife. It's a relationship that's built on trust, an intimate knowledge of one another's lives. It's the image of a relationship that is confident that God has the best interest of his people in mind. It's a powerful image, but it can be difficult to accept. And this is the relationship God always longs to have with us. He wants you and I to know the Lord. But in knowing the Lord, our loyalty, it'll demand a lot of us. And we see this struggle as Jesus gets closer to the cross. In John chapter 12, 20 to 33, Jesus is at a pivotal moment in his mission of reversing the power of death for all creation. In this story, Jesus is with his disciples in Jerusalem. Here's the moment when Jesus sees he is on the right path. Listen to what it says in verses 20 to 22. Now some Greeks were among those who had gone up to worship at the feast. So these approached Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Well, Philip went and told Andrew, and they both went and told Jesus. Now, did you see it? The Greeks asked to see Jesus. Now, these Greeks converted to Judaism, and they are in Jerusalem to keep the Passover. We're not told what caused the Greeks to seek Jesus. Maybe they heard the news about his miracles. Maybe they heard the news about uh, his teachings in the synagogue and people were discussing the powerful insights of Jesus' teachings. Now, whatever their reason was, these Gentiles, the Greeks, were beginning to move towards Jesus. 
Then the time, then the time for when the whole world will come to Jesus, it means it's not far. Jesus has always known that the world would one day have the opportunity to enter in communion with God as Israel has for generations. In fact, Jesus says this in verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You see, the barriers of those who can know God, the barriers of those who were unclean, they were about to be removed forever through Jesus. And the doors of the kingdom of God, Jesus was about to throw them wide open. And the renewed covenant of Jeremiah 31 is being fulfilled in this chapter. Jesus recognizes that he is on the right path. The map of God's word has guided Jesus well. Today, are you able to discern the moments in your own life that confirm for you that you are on the right path? Like Jesus, has your spiritual maturity developed to where you see the depth and value of your faith? And that very faith is shaping every aspect of your life. Now, drawing a crowd, we see that as a success, but Jesus sees it differently. In fact, the Greek's request, it triggers something in Jesus. Instead of saying, Andrew, Philip, bring the Greeks to me, Jesus basically ignores the Greeks. And then Jesus gives an object lesson to his disciples and the crowd instead. Look at verses 25 to 26. Jesus replied, The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the solemn truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. The one who loves his life destroys it, and the one who hates his life in this world guards it for eternal life. If anyone wants to serve me, he must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be too. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, to hear that a grain of wheat had to fall into the ground and die before it could bear fruit, it would probably cause people to think, yeah, so what, Jesus? But Jesus takes this everyday occurrence, the planting of a seed, to reveal a profound spiritual truth. When Jesus said that he was about to be glorified, he knows his death is getting close. Obedience to God does not always bring fuzzy feelings and easy decisions. In fact, we know exactly how this realization made Jesus feel. Look at how Jesus is described when he follows this path of obedience to God's word. It says in verse 27, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. You see, the reality of the cross is causing Jesus to convulse, uh, to, to tremble in his soul. But the scriptures revealed that the Messiah must follow this path to the cross. The desire to follow God's teaching, it's not always pleasant. It's not always comfortable. Jesus says, I am the kernel of wheat that is going to die. Because if I do not die, no harvest will follow. My death is necessary for a production of a bountiful crop, 
a huge harvest of souls back to God. And after saying this, there's a voice from heaven that thundered for Jesus and the crowd to hear. And here's what the voice said. I have glorified your name and I will glorify your name again. God is saying to his son and for the disciples and for the crowd to hear, Jesus, you're on the right path. By by being the dying grain of wheat, I will glorify your name. I will do something amazing. And as difficult and troubling and costly as this path was for Jesus, Jesus walked it to the cross. Jesus followed the path to his death as God instructed him. And now here's the point. Here's the point where your soul may convulse and tremble. It's in verse 26. Jesus says, whoever serves me must follow me. It means we must be like the grain of wheat and lose our lives for Jesus' sake. That is the only way, the only path to spiritual fruitfulness and eternal life. Only death to self leads to everlasting life. Only death to self connects us to Jesus and his mission. And with this realization, this is when the other path is much more appealing. We don't want to die. In fact, we are raised to protect our lives, to pamper and indulge ourselves, to fight for the best things in life. But such a path is an eternal threat. To protect his disciples from the eternal dangers of the world and the pride of life, Jesus says, the only path that leads to eternal life is to follow me and come and die. Hear that again. The only path that leads to eternal life is to follow me to come and die. Here's three questions I want to ask you. What will it cost you to fall into the ground and die? What needs to die in you for pride to die? And why are you willing to pay that heavy cost? As we prepare for Easter next Sunday, wrestle with these three questions this week. And come to Jesus to die, that it may produce amazing spiritual fruit in your life. God bless.